0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vohr, and I'm joined as always by my co host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly.
2: Hey, Robert.
1: On today's episode, we talk with Sarah Robinson, our dear friend, Mm. uh, about being suicidal, navigating mental health crises while also being a Christian, and about her new book, I Love Jesus But I Want to Die, Finding Hope in the Darkness of Depression. But first, Holly, how are you?
2: Well, I am doing well. I am one day away from my birthday, and so I am excited about that. And I know we also had another birthday in the CXMH family this last week. So celebrating that one too. Right. Yeah,
1: it was it was Gray's birthday and yours. Mm-hmm. To be clear, is one day away from when we're recording this. So by the time That's it comes right. out, if you're listening to it, it was already Holly's birthday. So you can go right. uh, send her happy belated birthdays on <laughs> on various social medias. Uh, mm. But are you are you looking forward to it? Do you? I, don't, I can't remember if we've talked about this before. Just all the years of the show kind of blend together. But are you someone that like really loves your birthday, or is a little uncomfortable with it, or doesn't really care? I mean, where do you fall in that that kind of spectrum?
2: Oh, yeah. No, um, I, I mean, I actually wrote about it in my newsletter this month. I am a big proponent of birthdays. Um, and a lot of that has to do with some of the stuff that I've learned from Henry Nowen, over the last few years and the ways in which we recognize that birth for birthdays, we celebrate folks just for their presence and just for their existence in our world and just for who they are rather than celebrating them for what they do or their accomplishments mm. or achievements. Yeah. And so I really, really love birthdays just for that pure reminder that we are worth celebrating just for our existence. And so I, I try to, I mean, this year, unfortunately I do have a a two hour meeting on my birthday that I I can't get out of, but usually, I mean, aside from that one, um, I will be spending the day just with my family and resting and really kind of leaning into that gift of just being present and just enjoying it. So I I know I haven't always had that luxury, um, you know, over the years. But when I do have that, when I'm able to boundary off that day, I really try to do that. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Would you like me to go to your meeting for you?
2: You know what? (laughs) I would totally love that. It is virtual, however, you will need See? to be talking about research within the school of social work, and I don't know that that is going to be the thing that you will most want to do. So, well, no. I
1: mean, a two-hour meeting—it <laughs> sounds like one of the things that I would least <laughs> like to do. But that's just an indication mm-hmm. of how much I want to give you, like such a such a nice present for your birthday. Is that I would be that's willing amazing. to go to a two-hour meeting. So. <laughs>
2: You are such a good friend. Thank you, Robert. No, I, I, it'll be fun. It'll be fine. The meeting won't, it, I mean, it's, um, it's when we get together with some friends of the school and just kind of talk with them about the, th- the good things that are happening within the school. And so that's it. I mean, like, that's going to be fun. So if yeah. I had to be in a meeting, that is one that I would be happy to be in. So
1: gotcha. Anyways,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of, you know, the gift of, being alive and the yeah. you know gift of existing and our presence do you want to talk about this week's episode or do you want me Yeah, to, or... so, yeah. yeah.
1: no, I, like I mentioned, we talked with Sarah Robinson, who is uh, a friend of both of ours. I think we've mm-hmm. both known her for a while. And uh, we actually both got to read this book uh, quite a quite a, a bit ago. And so I know that both of us happily endorsed it. You actually wrote the foreword, So your name is mm-hmm. on the cover, which is cool. Um, yeah. But both of us obviously uh, endorsed it in, in a formal way as well as just, you know, on the show, we would say, hey, we, we recommend this book, right? So right. Um, it's definitely a, a, a fantastic book. And then the conversation, I actually was working on editing it right before we hopped on to record this. And I'm most of the way through uh, the the conversation part, the interview part. And it's such a good conversation that Sarah is Mm. so wise. And so I think so, so gentle and just a a beautiful spirit and so it was it was really fun to have her on not just as a friend but also I mean if I hadn't known her I would have thought man this conversation is good this book is is fantastic so I thought it was a lot of fun and really excited to to share with our audience and then hopefully have some of them go go pre-order this book
2: yeah, I I mean I I agree with you. This I mean I loved the conversation that we had with Sarah. I'm so grateful for her friendship, for her presence. I was deeply honored by the opportunity to write the foreword for this book. And you know, it really I mean we'll we'll gush in the episode about it and how great it is. So you'll get to hear all about that in a moment, but it just really is a relevant conversation I think for each of us regardless of You know, how we come to the conversation around depression, um, self-harm, suicidal ideation, you know, her transparency and honesty uh, with such a gentle spirit wrapped around it is really is a gift. I mean, and she she's very forward that, you know, she's not coming to this conversation as an expert, as a mental health expert, as a, you know, a theologically trained expert, but as someone who has lived through this and is wanting to um, care for and help those who are also navigating some of what she has had to walk. But I think it's helpful for any of us who are walking alongside others who are struggling too. So, Um, So I'm really, am excited for this episode and we did intentionally want this episode to come out before her book launches, because we really would like to invite our readers or our listeners, uh, sorry, we'd really like to invite Mm -hmm. our listeners to, to go ahead and pre-order this book. It is well worth the pre-order. So yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, we uh, will go ahead and get out of the way and uh, we'll say we'll have much, much more nice things to say about sarah in in the Mm -hmm. conversation itself um but we'll go ahead and and get out of the way and let you listen to our interview with sarah robinson
2: all right enjoy y'all so today we have sarah robinson on she once believed her lifelong battle with depression made her a bad christian and now she's an author and speaker who helps others discover that mental illness doesn't disqualify them from living rich, beautiful lives in Christ. Drawing from a decade of ministry experience and the mental health field, Sarah helps readers fight for wholeness and cultivate joy. She lives in Nashville with her husband, and she's the author of a new book that's coming out on May 11th called I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, Finding Hope in the Darkness of Depression. Sarah, it is so, so good to have you on. I feel like this is so long overdue
3: to have you on the show. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah.
2: Is there anything that we missed in your bio there that you want to tell our listeners about?
3: Um, uh, the only other thing that's fun news is my husband and I are expecting our first child, a baby boy, and he is coming in August. Yeah. Yay! That's so exciting! Oh man,
2: so 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 exciting for both you and Micah and your little boy. That's such good news. Thank you
1: oh, so yeah. much. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. I feel like I should say we're Holly and I really are so excited because we've been mm-hmm. friends for it feels like years. It feels like we've known each mm-hmm. other. Uh, and actually both got to actually endorse this book, which is really cool. So that's fun. This book is fantastic. So uh, really excited to have you here and talking about it today.
3: Thanks so much.
2: Yeah. In fact, when Robert and I were both reading your book over, I think it was in December, around that time, like November, December that we were reading it, um, he and I would like text each other like pictures back and forth, like with our notes in the book (laughs) and like exclamation points, like, yes, I'm so glad she said that. And just all the stars. And oh, it's just, it's so, so good. So good. So That said, as excited as we are to get to dive into this book, I would love if you could first tell us a little bit about the backstory of this book and um, what led you to writing it in the first place.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I have struggled with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and even self harm my whole life. I remember being a small child, like on the elementary school bus, and having intrusive thoughts about, like, Throwing myself out of the back of the school bus. And I didn't know that wasn't normal. You know, like it, when you deal with that your whole life, you're just like, this is what everybody deals with. But as I got older and eventually came to faith, I became a Christian in high school. I started getting all these messages that, like, Loving Jesus makes everything better. Like, if you pray and read your Bible and go to church and, you know, have prayer meetings at school and preach the gospel and go on mission trips, like, everything's going to be good. And the church culture that I came to faith in sort of um, supported that. We leaned a little bit towards some subtle, like, prosperity gospel stuff, not like God's going to give you a jet or anything like that, but like, if you. Put in like the right payment in the spiritual vending machine, you'll get the right blessings out. Mm -hmm. But that really wasn't my experience. And over time, I just began to feel like more shame and more despair and more hopelessness. And so, even though I'd had suicidal thoughts my whole life, I didn't actually plan or attempt suicide until after I was a Christian. And I didn't actually start. Mm -hmm. Self harming until after I was a Christian. So it was very much the opposite of the story you're kind of supposed to tell. Like you're supposed to tell this story of redemption. And I felt like my story was going the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for years, I just looked for resources, for help, for hope. And I just didn't see a lot in the church. You know, there would be books that I'd find at the Christian bookstore and they'd just basically be like, focus on good things, choose joy, like Jesus saved you, you should be happy. And none of that really resonated. And so eventually, I wound up getting help through a long process, um, which I talk about in the book. And, you know, a few years ago, when Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died, I was talking to our mutual friend, Steve. And I was like, here it comes." Here comes all the stupid things that Christians say. Like, if you were just a Christian, this wouldn't have happened. Like, suicide is so selfish Mm -hmm. and all of these really harmful myths that often kind of surface. And I was like, I just want to say, like, I love Jesus, but I want to die. And Steve, being a really good friend, was like, okay, but first, like, are you okay? This isn't like a serious statement right now. And I was like, thank you very Mm -hmm. much. Yes, I'm good. You know, it's just, I wanted to say it's possible to be in that place. And he was like, I think you need to write that article. So I did. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I had like two or 300 people following my blog at the time. So I was like, you know, maybe this feels important. Maybe like a few hundred or maybe a thousand people will read it. And that would be crazy. And it wound up going super viral. And, it was completely overwhelming, and I was like, "What is happening? Like, please turn off the faucet." There's tens and hundreds of thousands of people coming to my website, and I was just like, "What is this?" And people were just so desperate to hear someone be that honest. I think. And so, um, yeah. a couple weeks later, a literary agent contacted me, and she said, um, "One of my Facebook friends shared this and said that." If he had read this two years ago, his son might still be alive. And she was like, I knew I had to read this. And as soon as I read it, I knew you d- needed to write a book. And so that's how the book came to be. That was about three three years ago this summer. Yeah, so not what I expected to be writing about, not the path I expected to take. But, you know, it just really came out of this place of seeing so many people resonate with this message and just wanting someone to be really, really honest about what it's really like to try and reconcile your faith and your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. No,
2: that's man. I, I, I love your openness and your authenticity through not only in that blog. And I actually, I hope we can like, we'll probably link that blog in the show notes for our listeners to get to read. But just your, the ways in which you've brought your whole self into this work, Sarah, mm-hmm. um, from that point and forward and just the ways that Robert and I have kind of gotten to know you. I remember, I know you mentioned our dear friend, Steve Austin, who yeah. was one of the early, the co-hosts of this show. Um, but I remember when he had reached out to me and was like, do you know who Sarah Robinson is? You should know who she is, Holly. And, um, and he had, you know, connected us early on, but just your, your your presence and your willingness to have these conversations as important as they are within the Christian community and and faith community or I'm sorry and in the mental health community too are just such a gift. So thank you. I appreciate that backstory. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I love I, I think you can tell when you're reading it that it's it seems less like somebody who said, okay, I'm gonna I set out to write kind of an instructive book about these things and more someone who said, this is my story. And when I start sharing it, people resonate and say, gosh, me too. That sounds like my story. That sounds like people I know. Right. And so like just the amount of personal narrative that there is in that, I think uh, you can tell that that's kind of a different, it's coming from a, a place of like, this is my story and here's what I've learned. And I want to invite people into that as opposed to maybe like a, well, I set out to write kind of a structured book on these things, you know? And so I just, I love that.
3: Thanks. Yeah. It's definitely, um, it's definitely out of the personal place and the personal experience. It is, you know, it would be nice to be like such an expert and just, you know, write this like simple self-help book. But I think, Story is what people resonate with the most. And I think it's so important because if you just tell someone what to do, it's like, okay, whatever. Like I've heard that before. But if you can show somebody how it's changed your life and how you've experienced it and how you've wrestled with it and how it hasn't been easy, I think people are a lot more apt to relate to it and connect with it and even be willing to try some of those things, because it doesn't sound like you're sitting on your high and lofty throne, like, oh, here's all the answers, just do these things, check off this list, and you'll be fine. But I'm in the trenches with you, and I know what this is like. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, I I definitely pick up on that throughout the book. I mean, not only the storytelling, but as you were just kind of alluding to, you don't um, approach this topic as like you said, like some kind of expert who's like, here's the five-step plan through this, but the humility that you bring to this book and the ways in which you really share, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not a, you know, I, I don't have like the extensive like theological training. I don't come in with this extensive mental health training. I am someone who has navigated this and and just want to elevate awareness around this as well as come alongside fellow travelers who are navigating this intersection of faith and mental health but particularly with severe depression and self harm thoughts of self harm and suicidal ideation it's just embedded throughout the whole book it is that humility is something i really appreciate this is going to be a big accolades episode of just how much we love this book i promise we'll get into talking about the book and and all the pieces but Oh, yeah, well, why don't we yeah. why don't we start there actually? Why don't we just um, if you would kind of take us through the book. I'll say like overarchingly, you have like three main sections. You have part one is labeled dying, Part two is labeled as surviving and part three is labeled as thriving. So if you're okay with it, I'd love for you to, to walk us through kind of each of these three main sections of the book with the first part being focused, as I mentioned, on uh, dying.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I labeled those sections just kind of thinking, like, this is what it really feels like or felt like to me, kind of feeling like I was moving from this place of almost like the walking dead. You know, like when you're in that really severe depression, you feel so disconnected and so... um, Crushed and kind of like, I talk about how you feel kind of like a ghost sometimes. And so that first section is really me coming to terms with I just, you know, became a Christian and I'm coming to terms with this fact that loving Jesus doesn't cure you, that, you know, you might have people of faith around you who care about you and want to support you, but they say terrible things and they don't know how to help. And, you know, really like wrestling with the shame I felt. I talk about my experiences with self-harm and just really being in a place where I was so hopeless and didn't believe that it was possible to get better. I didn't believe there was another life for me. And so um, in that section, I talk about really some of the darkest days and I share about self-harming. I share about suicide attempts. I share about Trying to, um, I believe it's in that first section, trying to go to therapy and having really hurtful experiences because I didn't know what to look for in a therapist. Um, And sort of ending that section with, you know, there's some hope woven throughout it. I had a really incredible experience where I opened up about self harming to some friends and they told me they weren't disappointed and how that kind of became the first moment of hope for me um and you know one of the things they said is like hey you really need to believe that God loves you like we need to pray that God will reveal his love to you and so kind of the end of that section is coming to terms with that um and then transitioning into the next section surviving at that point i'd been a christian for like 5 or 6 years i was starting to believe god loved me I was starting to have a little bit of hope, but I had this mindset where I just had to keep going. I just had to work hard enough and take care of everybody else and, um, you know, kind of put my own needs last. And so during this time, I became a youth pastor. I started helping more and more in the church. But I continued to struggle kind of behind the scenes. I eventually transitioned to being part of a really large ministry in Atlanta for a few years, and the pace was just grueling. Um, It was an incredibly wonderful ministry to be a part of, but it was really intense. And so that second section is feeling like, okay, I've got a little bit of hope, like I'm... I'm getting a little bit better, but I am literally just in survival mode constantly. And through that, I opened up about you know, a relapse I had with self-harm and depression to a group of young women I was working with. I opened up to a youth student who was spending time in a psychiatric hospital after a suicide attempt and started sharing a little bit more like These are my experiences. This is what I'm going through. And I began to see that sharing my experiences and my story was a little safer than I had thought before. There were people who cared and people who did respond really well, but it also helped other people. And so I began to see for the first time, like, I don't have to have it all together, I don't have to be this perfect leader who never shows any weakness. And I tried, you know, I talk again about trying to go to therapy and trying to figure it out. Um, But it wasn't until, you know, that end section thriving where I really learned one of the things that I say over and over again in the book is you are worth everything it takes to get better. And there came a point where I began to think like I'm going to have to do whatever it'll take to get better. I'm going to have to figure this out. I can't keep going into these depressive episodes that are so deep that I don't think I'll ever get out without having the tools to walk through them. And so that's what that third section is about, is really learning to apply some of the things that I'd learned over time. It's where I started talking to doctors and where I finally found a good therapist. On my fifth try, I found a good therapist. And Dealing with unresolved trauma and coming to a place of really deep acceptance where I really know, like I say in the book, like the darkness may, may always be there, but God will always be there in the darkness. And now I have tools and skills that'll help me get through my worst days, and they don't last forever. So I always know now hope is going to come again. There's going to be a day where I feel better again. And in the meantime, I can practice these things to kind of get through those worst days.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And obviously, we're so glad that, that you're still here and you have those tools and, and things like that, um, and that you're willing to, to share some of that story. I want to circle back and we can kind of talk through each of those chunks that you just talked about. I and mean, what, I, what I love so much about the first chunk of what you talked about I think there's there's some chunk of people that would say, okay, my experience is I said, uh, you know, here's what I'm going through, and I was told kind of explicitly, hey, depression means that you've done something wrong, right? Like there's kind of that explicit, but I think at least in anecdotally from me and the, the folks that we hear from, while that is true, there's this huge middle chunk that seems to be like. I kind of got that implicitly just with the the focus in kind of theological terms around healing and victory and all that. And so I I got there implicitly and then it was kind of reinforced by the things that people kind of said in response when I opened up about things, right? And you even said right there like there are people who really care about me who also happen to say terrible things out of a genuine place of wanting to help. So I would love if, if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of people saying things that that really actually weren't helpful, potentially harmful while acknowledging they were trying to help, you know, and then maybe what would be a better option for those who say okay, I'm trying to kind of respond to 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 pain that I don't know what to do with.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was really exactly what you just described was really my experience. Initially, a lot of things I picked up were very implicit, like God fixes broken things, Jesus is an overcomer, like All of this stuff was really commonly focused on in my church. I talk about the verses that we would recite together, like God heals all my diseases and forgives all my iniquities and all of that. But there was some really explicit stuff as well. At one point, I heard from the pulpit that if somebody were to take an antidepressant, it would be a sign of a lack of faith. So you know, that wasn't said directly to me, but that was something that was preached from the pulpit. I had people say over and over again, just choose joy, which is not in the Bible anywhere. Like That's not biblical. We liked to say that joy isn't an emotion, which is also entirely unbiblical. Everywhere you look in the Bible that describes joy, it's a feeling of happiness. It's not the thing that we try to make it, which is something outside of our feelings and our emotions. God intended us to experience joy emotionally. People would say this too shall pass, which, you know, is true to an extent. And some people find that one really helpful because it is true. Like my dark days don't last forever. But it was really dismissive. And especially coming from somebody, you know, a lot of the time I heard these things in my teens and early 20s. So hearing that coming from someone in their 40s or 50s, it came across as like, oh, you're just a kid. You don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, there were other things that kind of happened around me, watching loved ones go through really deep losses, grief, losing kids, losing jobs, Watching families struggle with abuse, um, things like that, and just hearing things that were like, well, maybe if you prayed more, you know, you wouldn't have lost that, or you must have some hidden sin, or you need to repent, or whatever. And I think so often these things do come from a place of not just being well intentioned. I really think that most. Christians are trying to do what's right and to encourage one another. But there's this weird pressure we feel to have the right answers and to think that all of the answers need to come from the Bible and need to come from inside of the church, which is just, I mean, like the Bible is not a manual on how to fix your car. Like it doesn't tell you how to do open heart surgery. There's a ton of things that the Bible doesn't tell us and doesn't have answers for. And while there's really good encouragement and hope and even insight for mental health, it doesn't tell us how to treat depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or any of that. So I think mm-hmm. what I when I have had people of faith respond really well, I think they've responded without feeling like they need to have answers. And that has been one of the most healing things to me. Um, I told a friend who was like six or seven years younger than me at the time. I tell this story in the book that I'd relapsed with self-harm. And I knew she looked up to me as a leader and all of this stuff. And she just grabbed me and pulled me into a hug and rubbed my back and said, It's okay. We'll figure it out. I love you. I'm not disappointed in you. She had no answers. She had no idea what to say that her older friend who she looked up to, you know, was struggling so badly. She was just like, it's okay. I love you. It's okay. And that was one of the most healing things to me. Um, there's a whole section in the back of the book where I talk about specific things that you can say. I give a whole list of questions you can ask. Um, little phrases you can use, but most of them are just coming from a really simple, compassionate place and just realizing you don't have to understand to make your loved one feel safe and cared for. So
1: Mm.
3: um, asking questions, how long has this been going on? Is there anything that makes it worse? Um, Do you know why you feel this way? Saying, I'm so glad you told me. That phrase that my friends used saying, I'm not disappointed in you is disorientingly loving. Like it rattles you when you're talking about like, I'm struggling with these things that I'm so ashamed of. And you say, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not disappointed in you. I don't think you're a bad person. It's like, wait, what, what are you saying? And it just like, almost for me, it almost like kind of turned my world upside down. But the big thing is your loved one, your friend, your congregant, they just need to know you're with them and you'll help them figure out what they need to get better. You know, you can say, I don't have answers, but I'll help you find them. Can I help you make an appointment? Can I drive you to the doctor? Can I take you to the therapist? Like whatever it is, they just need to know you're with them and with them for the long haul.
2: Yeah, that's, that's so good. I love that, that sense of compassion and presence and how much of an impact that has on our loved ones when they are going through difficult times. And the way that you outline how that was helpful for you through this stage in particular, I think was so just well written. I know we, we focused quite a bit on the faith side. Robert had a, I loved Robert's question. I'm so glad he went there in in asking about, you know, those comments or sayings. I am, I do want to flip it a little bit and talk about the mental health side. And I recognize that you talk about in this chapter and you you alluded to it a little bit before, but you have a chapter called bad therapy (laughs) in this section um, and how that played a role like within your journey you talked a little bit about, about biblical counseling within that and just from your perspective and experience what that was like. And so I'm curious like what you would say to those who um, have navigated, well, A, if you could unpack a little bit about that, your experiences with therapy, and then yeah. B, what would you say to those who have navigated past messy experiences with mental health care providers? Um, like what would you say to them at this point?
3: Yeah, Absolutely. So I started off being super afraid of science and therapy, you know, coming from an evangelical charismatic background, I was kind of taught, like, science is worldly wisdom, don't trust that, like, at best, it'll lead you astray, at worst, you'll lose your faith. And so there was, you know, some of that was explicit, some of that was kind of implicit.
1: Mm-hmm
3: but I was very afraid to seek help outside the church. And so when I finally did, the first person I tried to see, and I lived in a fairly small town, not tiny, but small at this point. And so probably there weren't as many good resources available. First person I saw was a Christian counselor, but she was incredibly pushy and, in the first session, told me all these things I needed to do to fix certain situations for other people. And it was just overwhelming. And I never went back. Then I was like, okay, I didn't get a recommendation. So I'm going to get a recommendation from somebody I trust for the second one. So I did. But the person they recommended, their website said they were a board certified Christian psychologist, which sounded super legit. Um, I didn't know at the time that this person had gotten a degree from basically an online degree mill that didn't have any real accreditation or certification with it. So she was not actually a licensed therapist. Um, She didn't know anything about psychology or human development or any of that. She practiced what is actually known as biblical counseling, or sometimes it's called nithetic counseling. And it was a really damaging experience. Um I went and saw her probably 3 or 4 months and um she just was not equipped at all to deal with real mental illness, to deal with trauma. Um she told me at one point it was my fault that she couldn't help me. She wanted to tell me about her problems with her son and talk about temperament tests and things Oof. like that and quote Bible verses. And so I thought this is what counseling was. It wasn't until years later I learned that there was a difference between somebody who's an actual mental health provider, an actual therapist, and somebody who has maybe gotten some training in pastoral counseling or biblical counseling where their entire curriculum is based on, you know, the Bible, which again, doesn't really tell us how to treat psychiatric illnesses. Mm. Um. So that was really damaging. I saw someone who was a really wonderful counselor, but was way overworked and on staff with a mega church. And so sometimes I'd show up to sessions and she wouldn't because her assistant double booked her. And so again, she was a great counselor, but she wasn't a great fit for me. And so through all of those experiences, I I thought this is what counseling was. I thought it didn't work for me. I thought that I was too messed up and too broken to get help. So what I didn't know is that there's a ton of research around the fact that the most important factor in a successful counseling relationship is the relationship. Um, I didn't know the differences between what it means to be actually certified and licensed. I didn't know that people specialize in different things and that a grief counselor is way different from a trauma-informed therapist. And so eventually I learned some of these differences. And when I started working in the mental health field, I got a referral to a wonderful trauma-informed therapist who completely changed my life. Um, She happened to also be a Christian, but At that point, what I discovered was I think the licensing and the relationship and the equipping was way more relevant to the progress I made than the fact that we shared a faith. And Mm -hmm. so what I would say if you're struggling, um, if you've had messy experiences, is that sometimes it takes a while to find a good fit. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know, like I didn't. and when you know there's specialization there's specific resources there's different treatment types that counselors and therapists can do you can start to search for someone who you think might be a better fit for you and then i anytime i'm trying out a new counselor i commit to 3 sessions and as long as there's no weird major red flags you know i would stop after one session if there were but three sessions gives you enough time to like kind of settle in and get over the initial jitters and see if you feel safe enough and like you could have a good relationship with this person to keep working. And if not, without guilt, I move on and try to find somebody else. And if so, then I keep working with them.
2: No, that's, that's so good. I, I really appreciate just how you do go into it feels like you carry both sides of this intersection really well as a as yeah. you know as a client as somebody who has navigated this within your own mental health struggles and healing process and. The way that you weave them in together for us all to learn, whether we are a mental health care provider, a faith leader, or someone who has a mental health struggle or loves someone with a mental health struggle, you you just – you navigate this so well. So thank you for being able to speak to both sides as it related to – especially under that first part. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. So uh, I know sometimes we uh, kind of think of – I have this conceptualization in my brain, right, of people say like – oh, we'll just get some help, right? As if the getting help is kind of the end goal, right? Like, oh, if you're really struggling, if we can get you to a therapist or like if you just, you know, that being kind of like the poof, now we're done. And as you talked about earlier, right? Like that is kind of the beginning of this process of how do I learn about myself about things that are helpful or harmful or how to like this healing process as opposed to kind of like a a curing fixing process right and so i just want to ask about kind of transitioning into part two in terms of from there you say okay i started to learn uh, what i needed in therapy things that were helpful things like that what does that process look like in terms of okay now i'm i'm kind of starting the road of healing as opposed to like well just just get help and then like poof now we're good
3: (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if it were that simple? I mean, that's
1: It'd be amazing. Yeah. I would charge way more.
3: <laughs> I mean, that would basically be the equivalent of like the magic wand I talk about, like praying, like, Jesus, I know you got a magic wand up there somewhere. Like, oh, I can just go to a doctor and get a magic pill or like go to therapy, whatever, and two sessions and I'm good. Yeah. But it's not like that. It really is a process. It really is a holistic whole life thing where you have to, I mean, they talk about therapy and call it doing the work because it is work. You look at all of these things in your life, the things you believe, the things that you think, the things you've been taught about yourself, these experiences you've had, and you kind of have to put it all on the table and say like, okay, what stays, what goes, what Is real, what isn't, what's true, what's helpful. And that is like way scarier than you want to admit. Like looking at things and being like, oh, I, you know, coming to this place where I realize like, oh, like my most intrinsic belief about myself is that I'm a terrible, toxic, harmful person. And like actually facing that when you're supposed to say, like, I know Jesus loves me and my identity is in Christ. And doing the work not just in your sessions but every day of your life of okay if i actually believe that i'm worthy i need to treat myself a lot different i need to talk to myself differently i need to learn to set boundaries i need to receive kindness from people i need to receive kindness from god i need to speak kindly to myself And it is a long and difficult process because you're, you know, you're undoing things that have been done throughout your whole life. You're literally, you know, as kind of lay people, we talk about rewiring our brains. We're changing the pathways in our brains to think and believe new things. And so often we need to do those, you know, in the presence of a good therapist and also with some medical support a lot of times. A lot of times we think like, oh, well, I can just go to therapy or I can just take medication and it's just going to make everything better. But for me, I discovered that taking medication was the thing that got me stable enough so I could do the work. And once I did the work in therapy and started to change the way I think about myself, then I was finally able to circle around to a lot of those self care things that people try to say, you know, that's another thing that people say is like the beginning of the journey, like, Oh, just go for a run and eat some salad, you know, like exercise and eat right, and that'll fix your depression. Um, but I was, if I couldn't get out of bed, I couldn't exercise. If I couldn't eat anything, I couldn't make myself a healthy meal. Yeah, so it's really it's it's not just like, okay, go to therapy. Okay, do this thing. Like there's no one thing that's just going to fix it all for anybody. It's definitely a holistic whole life thing that we have to look at and have to work through and have to play with all of these factors to find out what is the right treatment plan and what is the right path for us. Yeah. yeah. And
2: I, man, I'm so glad. I mean, you are jumping right into so many of the great things that you unpack, especially at, in the thriving section. And and you talk about it in surviving too. But one thing that I know you, you didn't mention just now, but you do talk about really well in the book is that one of the pieces too is learning to accept what it is yeah. that we have or that we're wrestling with. I mean, so one of the things though that, that you do really... Uh, write about quite beautifully in the book is you make that um, analogy to it being like having a limp. Um, You have a a quote in here where you say um, that we have to do this with our mental health. We we need to learn to set boundaries, to say no, to notice the first signs of depression flaring up and act accordingly. We can learn to live with our limps. And then you write a little bit more saying, I learned that the best way to move through these seasons of stress like this is to listen more closely to my body. But all of this really requires us to acknowledge and accept what it is that we are facing and, and dealing with so that we're not just like trying to bypass it or quick fix through it or pretend it's not there, but to to sit with, to lament to be with, to acknowledge, um, and and then from that place to move through. I don't know if there's anything you want to add or mention about that in particular, about just that that acceptance part and how that played a role in in your journey.
3: I think acceptance is huge for me. It really came in stages. I talk about a wise mentor who looked at me one day and was like, "Honey, you deal with depression," and even though you know we're like. Way far into the book by that point, I had not come to terms with the fact that, oh, I have an illness. I have depression. This is a thing. This is not a lack of character. This is not something I can just fix or get past. Like, this is a thing. And so, first, I had to accept this exists in my life. Um, But I still, for a long time, believed that I would get to a point where it was no longer a factor. And so for me and for many people, because depression is such a recurrent illness, I had to learn to accept that short of some miracle that God has not chosen to do or some miracle treatment coming out that is not on the horizon yet, I'll deal with this in seasons for the rest of my life. So coming to a place of really... Accepting that, accepting that it is in many ways for me a chronic illness, that was hard and that felt like giving up. It felt like failure at first, but ultimately it began to feel like a lot of hope because if this is my life, if this is just part of what I experience in this broken world, then I can give myself permission to pace myself. And that living with a limp story comes from um, the story of Jacob in the Bible, who wrestled with God all night long. And it says that he prevailed. He got his name changed to Israel, which means you wrestled with God and you won. But he didn't win. He didn't prevail because he, like, pinned God and, you know, God tapped out or anything like that the word means endured because he hung on, he stayed, he stuck with it. And then for the rest of his life, he was left with a limp. And um the type of injury that they think he had would have affected so much and it would have flared up sometimes and there would have been days where it was worse and days where it was better. And that is such a picture of what it's like to live with mental illness. You know, some days are good, some seasons, some months, some weeks are really great. And it's not an issue for me at all. But acceptance and learning to live with my limp means that I have to pay attention and notice like, oh, I've felt sad for a few days in a row and everything's good in my life. Or, oh, it's getting to be that time of year where there's not a lot of sunlight and I need to be more intentional to take care of myself because I tend to struggle here. Or if I overschedule myself, I'm going to crash in a week or two. And that's all just part of that acceptance is knowing I don't have to push myself beyond what is healthy for me. And if I do, that's not selflessness. That's not serving others. That's actually setting myself and others up for failure because then I'm not going to be able to respond and take care of people and take care of my responsibilities You know, in a week or two from now. And so That acceptance is so important, not just for us, but also for the people around us, the people that we love and care about, for our families, for our friends, to be able to um, pace ourselves and offer honestly and freely and without resentment what we can truly give in a healthy way.
1: Yeah. And I love that that as you talk about this being for for some people right a chronic thing that that's not attached to a sense of like well then i just toss my hands up and say like well i guess then this is what it is right i think i i use this image with clients a lot of times where if we're we say okay we've reached this point and it's mile 10 on this highway if we can work our way backwards and say okay next time can we can we start building out an idea of what are some landmarks along the way and if i can grow that awareness then at some point i could say oh, I think this is around mile seven. Are there things I can do to get off an exit here? It's not a foregone conclusion that every time I say, oh, yep, here I am on the same highway that I end up at mile 10, right? But can I, through a lifelong process of learning, say, okay, I'm recognizing some landmarks, I'm finding some things that help me get off earlier exits, right? Like it doesn't, it's not just, okay, well then this experience is going to be the experience forever and ever. And so like, I guess I'm totally toast here, right? But like that, that hope element as well, I love.
2: Yeah. No, that's good. I love that analogy, Robert. That's really helpful. Um, and I think it is important that, yeah, this isn't, the acceptance isn't a, you know, full throw your hands up and not do anything. Um, and it also, you also write in the book how the limp doesn't define us. Like, it, you know, the the diagnosis or whatever the thing is, it doesn't define us, but it gives us information that we can then use to move forward into that thriving section that you really offer then some beautiful tips and suggestions and things to be considering. And, you know, I definitely, I, at this point, I definitely want to point our readers to the book and just tell them like, at this point, like, please go pick it up. Because especially in the thriving section, you have so many great, things for the reader to be thinking about and integrating into their own lives in order to thrive. And again, but it's not necessarily in a prescriptive way that you do it, but you really do come from that descriptive place of like, you know, here are some ways that I have found uh, thriving within my own life. And you invite the reader to seek out those ways that they can find thriving within their lives. So, so I really do appreciate that, but I do want to be mindful of your time and sensitive to your time too. So Robert, I don't know. Do you want to ask the last question?
1: Yeah, I can. I was going to say, I know we had marked a question to ask you who this book is for. Oh I think yeah, that, that's right. You know, from my perspective, having read it and you can correct me if this is wrong, but I would say this book, if, if you're someone who has struggled with suicidal ideation or is currently, or knows somebody or knows somebody, but doesn't know, you know, somebody just, you know, maybe that most of us probably do Uh, or if you're a faith leader or I mean I think this book would be helpful to anyone from any side or a mental health care provider right like yeah helpful so I don't know who you wrote it for necessarily but in my opinion this book is for everyone which is why obviously we've like gone on and on about how much we love it Mm -hmm. I would love to ask and maybe this uh, compare with that what is your hope for this book knowing how much of you is poured into it I mean there's like Literally, journal entries of yours from uh, dark times, and you know, like how, how personal a topic this is to to write through. What is your hope for this book as it as it launches into the world?
3: So, I wrote this book first and foremost for people like me who have so wanted to know they're not alone, and that they're not a bad Christian, and that there is hope. So first and foremost, I wrote this book for people who struggle with depression to whatever degree. And, you know, to a lesser degree, I talk about struggles with anxiety and trauma as well in that. And so there's, I think, a lot that's applicable to anyone who struggles with a mental illness and for those who love them and care about them. And, you know, like you were saying, Robert, at least one in five people has a diagnosable mental health condition in any given year in the United States, we all know more than five people. We all know somebody who's struggling. So whether you're a faith leader, a teacher, um, a coach, whatever, like somebody in your life is struggling. And so I do think that this book could be really helpful just to understand what it's really like and kind of dispel some of those myths as well as to show you what resources are available and how to respond. Um, So I hope that this book does all of those things. But more than anything, you know, I end the book with this story that is not the story that you expect to end like a Christian self-help book. And it's basically me having a panic attack in a coffee shop um, on a beautiful spring day. And after I've learned all of these things, and after I have Learned to care well for myself, and learned that I am so loved, and that that is the truest thing about me. I still have a panic attack in a coffee shop on a beautiful, perfect spring day, and I talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you know, it's like a story that we've all known from um, Veggie Tales or Flannel Graphs or whatever uh-huh. Sunday school. But what we don't talk about is that God didn't save them from the fire. So they get thrown into this fiery furnace and they say, you know, King, you can throw us in the fiery furnace. That's fine. Our God is able to save because the king's like, what God can save you? And they're like, our God can save us if he wants to. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. We're, We're not going to bow to your idols. And it's that even if that I really want people to walk away with, Um, that even if for whatever reason, a God who is capable of putting the whole world back together chooses not to heal this in me, I can still have a beautiful life. I can walk Mm. through my hard days. Even if I deal with depression and have panic attacks for the rest of my life, I can be confident that I am not alone and that I'm loved, and that I'm worth everything it takes to get better, and that good days will come again, and that I have tools and resources I can use, and people who love me, and I've built this beautiful life that is not lessened in any way by my pain or my depression or my anxiety. Um, And I want everyone who reads the book to walk away with that, that you can learn this. These are skills and tools you can learn. You're not stuck. You're not stuck exactly how it is in your pain. There's a beautiful life for you ahead.
2: Oh, gosh, Sarah. Well, you are bringing tears to my eyes too, just listening to you. And I will say with wholehearted confidence that that is what the reader walks away with. That is what I walked away with after reading your book and just such deep gratitude for you, for your presence, for the gift of your presence in our world and for the wisdom and experiences that you share with us in this book. Yeah. Well, if you would like to connect with Sarah, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Sarah J R B N S N. Um, You can find her on Facebook at Sarah J. Robinson Writer, um, and her website is sarahjrobinson.com. You can buy Sarah's upcoming book, I Love Jesus, But I Want to Die, Finding Hope in the Darkness of Depression, wherever you buy your books. And again, that releases on May 11th, but pre-ordering is something we highly recommend um, for this particular book. If y'all would like to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert com or on any social media at robert Bohr. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. Sarah, thank you again a million times for joining yeah. us today, for writing this book, and just for being who you are. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners today?
3: Gosh, I think we've covered it all. I just I just want you to know that there's hope and I know that sounds so trite but coming from somebody who has lived without hope for a really long time it's real and it's available and um, just to reiterate you're not stuck how things are you know things can change you can change you can learn and I really do hope that if you read this book that that's the thing that you're left with that you're loved and there is hope. Thank you guys so much for having me. This has been just an utter delight.
0: Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.